So uh, we're doing a vision series. This is our last week of the vision series. And uh, as I kind of opened up this morning, we talked about gospel, community, and mission. So we've kind of hit on all three of those this morning. We're talking about kind of corporate church planning, mission, all that stuff. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew 20, uh, 20 through 28. It should be up here on the screen in just a moment. And uh, so let me go ahead and read it. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave." Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. I love the way everybody set up this morning. If this was a wedding, everybody would be friends with the groom and the bride would cry because we have hardly any seats open on this side and whole rows of nobody sitting over on this side. I love that. So we are finishing up uh, the last sermon in a series. It's kind of our vision series. And we talked about gospel, we talked about community, we talked about mission. Two weeks ago, I talked about mission, and I kind of hit the front end or one side of the coin, if you will. And I talked about that God is ascending God. His very nature of God is ascending God, and, and the Father sends the Son, the Father and the Son send the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit send us into the world, and we are the agents for God's mission in this world right now. And it's every single one of us. Every single one of us is called to mission. If you are a Christian, you are called to mission. It's not just for the, the super Christians, for the pastors, for the evangelists, for the missionaries. It is for every single one of us. And this is to be lived out in the context of our daily lives. Everywhere that we go, every single day, it's not just an event that happens once a month that you go downtown and you yell at people through a blowhorn. This is every single day you are living in your community, living in your neighborhoods, living in your workplace on mission. So this is our picture for mission. Everyone, everywhere, every day mission. So that's kind of one side of the coin. This morning we're gonna switch gears a little bit and hit the other side of the coin, which is being a servant. In our city groups, we're talking about our gospel identity as servants and how key that is, is for us to serve others and serve our city and our world well. And then on the back side of that is going to be uh, church planning. Um, that's going to be our discussion for today. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you um, for moving in the city. We thank you that we are, are seeing fruit of the labor here in the city. We thank you that you've called the people to be your own and that they are living out this gospel message in their neighborhoods and in their workplaces and in their communities. Father, we ask that your name be glorified, that we don't draw attention to ourselves, but that, that we might point people to worship of you because you are worthy of our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Has anyone uh, been online this week? You've probably seen a video that's been flying around on Facebook and other social media sites. And it's this group of sorority girls who are at a Arizona Diamondbacks game. Have you seen this? Okay, if you haven't, let me just describe this scene to you because it's classic. Um, the announcers kind of pan out and they, they show these sorority girls. And I think like first the intention was just recognizing people were there like, this is so great, sorority girls coming together to a professional baseball game to support their local professional baseball team. How great is this? And as they're kind of talking about that a little bit, they notice that every single girl is on their phone and nobody's paying attention to the game. And guess what most of them are doing? They're taking selfies, yes. They have their, their, their phones out like this and they're taking pictures of themselves and then they're taking better pictures of themselves and then they're taking pictures of themselves with duck lips and then they're taking better pictures of themselves with duck lips then they're taking pictures with their friends and then they're taking pictures of them with their hot dog and then they're taking pictures of them with their hot dog with one bite out of it then they're taking pictures of the field with their hot dog in the picture and over and over again like they go back to these girls who are sitting there on their phones and then they'll go back to the game okay that's a strike and they'll be like yep still looking at their phones and then they go back to the game and be like Okay, it's a ball. Yep, they're still looking at their phones. Would somebody please go take these phones away from these girls so they watch this game? Then they go back to the game and the guy hits a single and they pan back and the poor announcer's like, and nobody noticed. <laughs> I mean, that's just a good picture of what our culture is like, right? We are becoming more and more consumed with self to the point where, where selfie is an actual word in the dictionary now because we take pictures of ourselves and we think it's really important that people know about ourselves. Okay, here's me, what I'm going to wear today. Here's what I'm eating for breakfast. Really, do we really care that much about you? It's probably true, but you don't need to advertise it in that kind of way. But you know, it's not just with sorority girls that we see this kind of self-focus. Um, I see it a lot in, in leadership as well. Um, there's this, this one leader that, that I kind of follow that everything he posts is like he's patting himself on the back of like, look at how great I am. I am doing way better than you are. I am hitting it out of the park. So here's me and look at this awesome thing I'm doing. And here's me with this celebrity over here. And sometimes I look at that stuff and I, I just get a little sick to my stomach. I'm like, you are, you are glorifying yourself. And yes, you're doing awesome things within the community. But how about you just... just Point at the things that are happening around you. Stop pointing at yourself. With Jesus, when Jesus was here, he didn't leave us with just a selfie picture of himself, did he? We get this picture of Jesus where he was so other-centered and so much about serving that Jesus made it his life goal, I did not come to serve, or I did not come to be served, but to serve. That was Jesus' mentality in his life. And if you look at Jesus' life, there are three things that kind of categorize his ministry. One, he had an attitude of humble obedience. You see this a lot in, and, and just on him coming down and being sent by the Father, you see this humble obedience to the Father. It's like, okay, the sinful mankind that is rebelling against you and running the other direction, I want you to identify yourself with them. I want you to put on their skin and, and you go down and even though they're rebelling against me and running the other direction, you become one of them and walk among them. He humbles himself by being born in a manger. There's nothing to draw us to his, uh, his appearance. He lives just this mediocre, behind-the-scenes kind of life. And then, of course, you know, in the end that he dies this sinner's death. 
he ultimately humbles himself, not by just dying a sinner's death, but he, he hangs on the cross where the ultimate sinners of that generation, where they would go, like this was the ultimate symbol of the humility of dying a, a criminal's death when he was yet perfect in himself. You see the humility in that, the humble obedience. The second thing you see in Jesus' ministry is you see his emotion, which was compassion. You constantly saw Jesus just walking into situations and he would, he would look upon somebody and his heart would go out to him. He didn't kind of look away when he saw somebody in need. He would, he would look at them and his heart was moved with compassion. He felt love for these people. And because of this compassion, he, it didn't just stop there. Like he didn't say, oh, this is so great and, and walk the other direction. His compassion led him to serve. And that's the third thing we see with Jesus all the time, that he took the position of a servant constantly constantly doing things, touching people that shouldn't be touched, associating with people that shouldn't be associated with. He took the lower position of a servant constantly. He put others before his own interest. In our text today, you see the sons of Zebedee. You have John and James, the sons of thunder, you know, is what they used to call them. And their mom, which I love, you know, the sons of thunder send their mom to, to like do the dealing with Jesus. And it's like, hey, how about, you know, we're getting this point right now that, that you are going to be in the kingdom one day and you are going to be sitting there on a throne. How about my two sons sit on your right and left? I mean, how arrogant is this request of like, you know, this would be awesome if they could just kind of receive that power and that glory, just, just seat them next to it. Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not going to happen. You know, first of all, can you, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? It's like, yeah, we can do that. Like, they finally speak up for themselves. Yeah, we can do that. He said, yeah, you will. You will drink that cup. You are going to suffer. You are going to face persecution because of me. But it's not my call on who sits on my right and left. That's my father's call. And the other disciples that are with him, they hear what's happening, and they're like, oh, yeah. John and James and their mom, and they're trying to get a leg up on, on the kingdom. You know, we want our place in there. And they start having this argument together about who is the greatest. Can you imagine this? Like Jesus is just about to, to leave and go back to the Father and, and, and go to the cross and die for their sins. And they're arguing about who is the greatest. You know, who's going to get this position up in heaven? And Jesus, in verse 25, he called them to him and said, you know that the rulers and Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There was an expectation that if you followed a great teacher, and that culture of that day, that you would one day become great. I mean, think about people that associated themselves with someone great, great minds and great teachers and great thinkers of that day, that you would become great when your teacher became great. So they recognize this out of Jesus, of like, this is greatness here, so are we going to be raised up with him? Are we going to become great? Jesus said, no, no, no. Not among you guys. We are going to be different than the world. This isn't going to happen with us. You are going to be a servant to other people. That's how people are going to know you're with me because you are going to serve just like I have served because I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus couldn't, didn't come to be served. 
And followers of Jesus were to take a different posture than the world around them. They weren't to, to uh, raise themselves up and to lord their power and their authority over other people. They were to take that of a servant. But I love that Jesus didn't just like tell them, okay, here's what you're going to do. Okay, I want, I want you to be servants, but I'm going to take all this glory upon myself. But then you guys, you guys just be servants behind me. That's not what Jesus does, is it? He constantly takes that posture, even himself, as, as a servant. In John 13, 1 through 7, it was right before the feast of the Passover. And uh, Jesus knew that his time was coming. He knew that he was going to have to suffer at the cross, and then he was going to go to the Father. And he has this, this supper and invites all of his disciples around. And then he, he raises up during the supper takes off his outer garments, wraps this towel around himself, grabs a basin of water, kneels down before his disciples' feet and begins washing their feet. He begins washing the disciples' feet. And of course, Simon Peter's like, no, 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 Lord, you're not going to do this for me because I, I respect you way too much for you to take the role of a servant with me. Of course, Jesus has to tell him, you know, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you will have no place with me. And then Peter's like, well, not just my feet then, but my hands and my head. And she's like, you're, you're not getting this, are you, Peter? You're really not understanding it. In verse 12 of John 13, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor his messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's like three different times he tells them, you need to do exactly how I'm doing, just wash other people's feet. Take that position of a servant and wash their feet. There's a couple of things I need to say about washing the feet, just to put you in the context of how humiliating this was. First of all, in, in, the, in Israel of that day, um, I don't know if you've, you've seen any pictures or anything like that. It wasn't like they had paved roads and sidewalks they would walk on. It was pretty much a desert, and there's dirt all over the place. And picture this. They walked miles and miles and miles to wherever they went, and they didn't have Nike cross trainers, no Reebok pumps, they had these sandals, so all this dirt and stuff is getting in there. And imagine the, like the condition of their feet for walking in sandals with, with probably horrible support, no padding. They were probably calloused and, and beat up like nothing you've ever seen before. They were probably disgusting feet. I'm, I'm a little OCD, so when I think about like Jesus getting up from the meal and getting down there and washing people's feet, like that, that does it for me. I'm like, ah, oh. I'd have to take a whole bath after doing that. I'd just wash my hands. But Jesus gets down on his knees and washes feet that have no medications for bunions or warts or gout or hammer toe. Sorry, I'm grossing you all out. Just think about where you're going for brunch today. Their feet had to be so jacked up that it's no wonder that a servant took this kind of position. It wasn't often the leader or, you know, no leader or someone with prominence would actually stoop to that kind of level to wash these disgusting feet except for Jesus, right? Jesus humbles himself and he doesn't care and he says, I'm going to serve you by washing your feet. 
This is Jesus' examples to us. If Jesus, our Lord and teacher, can wash our feet, we also should wash one another's feet. Now, I think it'd be too easy for us to look at these verses and say, okay, um, obviously Jesus is calling us to start a foot-washing ministry within this church. You see a lot of churches doing that. They take this kind of literal context, but if we took this as, okay, we need to start a, a foot-washing service, we'd be missing the forest for the trees. Jesus is giving us a different kind of picture here. Jesus isn't telling us to literally go wash people's feet, but he's telling us to take that, that humble position of getting down and doing something that maybe is not going to be comfortable for you, might gross you out a little bit, might be inconvenient for your schedules, but to just take that lower position of a servant and kneel down before somebody else and serve them. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. What might this look like in our culture? If we were to wash the feet of Madison figuratively, what would that look like for us? I can think of just a few examples, and um, I'm sure in your context and the way you live that you can come up with many examples yourself, but I think about a friend of mine who had an injured calf but still ran a half marathon, and after he was done with the marathon, he mowed somebody else's lawn because he wanted to serve them in that capacity. That's washing somebody else's feet right there. I think about another guy who has a large family and is very um, much busy with his profession, serves a lot here on Sundays, and yet took time out of his schedule to go over to the Morgan's house and give Kyle shots because Anna didn't like needles. I mean, that is washing someone else's feet. I know several people who work at Epic that their schedules are massively full, yet serve here on Sundays and often give up Saturdays to help people move. That is washing other people's feet. So just think about what would that look like for you to humble yourself, to put others before yourself and serve others like Jesus has served us. When we started Redeemer City Church, one of our goals in the first year was just to love and serve our community. We didn't have a lot of goals. We said, let's just focus on this, love and serve our city. It was really neat that when we began uh, serving kind of like the resistance we had here in Madison where people didn't really want anything to do with Christians. I mean, they're still like that, by the way. We haven't renewed Madison with the gospel yet. That's our mission statement. We're far from that, trust me. But even like when we began serving in, in this, this school and we began meeting almost a year ago here, there were certain like teachers that would complain of like, okay, there's chairs that were put out of place or, or this thing is missing or there was something spilled on the floor that nobody cleaned up. And we'd be getting these complaints. But the really neat thing that happened with this is we found that the, the principals and the staff would go to bat for us. It was like having a person of peace within this very school where they would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You want, you want to complain about this, this one little thing? And by the way, I'm, I'm happy that they complained because we want to leave this thing, this place better than when we came. So I'm not like picking on the teachers here. But what I want to draw out is, is they would say, don't you know how much this church does for us? Don't you know how much they, they serve us and, and, and how much they mean to us? I mean, that's about as best as we could ask for is having the principals and the staff go to bat for us and say, whoa, 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 we're not going to complain about this because... We love this church. We love what they're doing in this community. I mean, that was, that was a win for us. We looked at that and we said, 
That is awesome. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons that we, we serve in this capacity. Why do you think the principals and staff would go to bat for us like that? Why do you think they would speak out and kind of put their own reputation on the line when people were resistant and really didn't like a church being in this? Because they saw us serving. They saw us taking that lower position and serving others well. I'm sure they could look back and say, remember how they served at the, at the Cheetah Chase or, or giving Christmas gifts for the teachers and staff and gratitude for their service or serving at the Pines or feeding over 700 people at the back-to-school picnic or feeding the teachers and the staff on, on Appreciation Day or during exams or tutoring students or serving the dual immersion program or wrapping presents for low-income families or sending meals home with students that couldn't eat on weekends. I'm sure they had a lot to do with them just saying, you know what? We might not like what this church is. We might not be Christians, but look at the way they serve us. We are so happy that they're here and so happy that they're in, in Madison and doing this. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus like, calls his disciples to serve in this kind of capacity. Because when you serve and humble yourself and take this lower position, walls against the gospel, they begin to crumble, don't they? It's hard for people to look at you and say, man, that person really loves me and really serves me well, and I can't stand them. That is really hard to do. So we love and serve our city well. Our mission statement that I mentioned a minute ago is seeking to renew our city through the gospel. Without taking the humble position of a servant, that mission statement is dead in the water. There's just no chance. We have to follow Jesus' humble lead and serve this city well. But let's say we do this. Let's say we, we love and serve this city well. I mean, we're just one small church that's not even um, a year in. I know, I don't know, 99.9% .9 of the, my neighbors in my neighborhood. We are over in the southwest corner of Madison. How are we going to see this city renewed by the gospel? Well, this is, this is where church planning comes in. I'm going to kind of take a hard right turn here because these, these two don't fit together perfectly, although they do fit together. Peter Wagner, who wrote a book called Church Planning for Greater Harvest, said that planning new churches is the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven. I love that quote. If, if you had just started coming here, we are a church planning church, which means that we planted this church and we use the terminology, which is kind of weird, we planted this church pregnant, which means that we planned on giving birth before we were even born in this city. We knew that we were going to plant more churches in the city because if we want to see this city renewed by the gospel, it's not going to happen by, by just us hanging out over here with our, our four city groups in this side of Madison. It's going to be planting a new community with many new city groups outside of that, planting another new community with many other city groups outside of that. It's going to take many many, many church plants in this city before we even start seeing a dent in this, this city. We see this in the early church. I mean, this is kind of how it got started. And when we began as a church um, a little over two years ago, we had 11 people that were involved. Well, first it was just the Hoberts and Johnsons that said, we are committed. And then we invited a few other people that we were grateful that everybody except for one couple that moved away said yes. But we started with 11 people. 
And this would be kind of cool for you to know because you're probably like, who were those 11 people? Well, it was, it was the Hoberts, then it was Sam and Jess Harding, Chris and Crossy, Lindy Hobbs, Zach Candy, Jeff and Becky Larson, and Ange and I. That was the 11 people that we started with. So we began to meet as a family, and we would just share meals together. We would think about ways that we could serve the city, and we began just polishing our people over and over and over again with our mission and vision statement so that they could just regurgitate it wherever they went. So then what happened is we had 11 of us, and then the locks, um, who were two of the people up here leading worship today, moved into town. And then Matt and Sarah Lichtenwald moved into town. And then some other people came around to the point where we had these, this one city group was like, okay, we're getting pretty tight in one house, so we need to start a second city group. And by the way, we never use the, the language of splitting because that's, that's not what we do. We plant. We send people because God is a sending God. We send people as well. So we, we sent another city group, and we had two city groups. And you could think, oh, man, that is great. And it was, it was painful because here you had people that you had lived as a small, tight-knit family with, and all of a sudden you didn't see them that one night of the week, and it hurt. But we did it for the sake of the gospel so that there might be one other neighborhood that has people that are living on mission in their neighborhood that are loving people, that are serving people in another part of the city that we can't reach for where we're at. So we grew by more people. So when we launched the church a year ago, we said, we need a, we need a third city group. So we went through the painful process again of, of sending people out of our city groups along with some other new people that were, were part of this church. And it was painful, and yet we sent and planted another city group up on the north side of, of Fitchburg in the Pines neighborhood. Well, we're coming up on a year anniversary, and just a few weeks ago, we planted our fourth city group, our first one in Madison, which is over on the southwest side of Madison, about uh, six minutes west of here. And we had uh, the Lichtenwalds, who were, it was like my city group apprentice in our city group. They came over just to kind of celebrate them, them leaving our group and, and planting a new city group. And it was, again, hard. You build these relationships with people and, and you become so connected with them and you want to see them multiple times a week and then you launch them out and you know you're not going to see them anymore, but why do we do that? It's so another neighborhood can know the gospel. It's, it's so another neighborhood can know the truth of what Jesus has done for us. It's so that more people can live on mission and get to know their neighbors and, and serve them well and help them move in and bring them meals and do all the kind of things that the church should be doing. We are constantly planting new city groups among the city because that's the only way the city is going to be reached. So, guess what's going to happen again? Probably next year, maybe even early in the year, we'll plant another city group and we'll have the hard breaking of people going off and not seeing them again in the week because we want to see the city reached. And then guess what's going to happen someday? We are going to plant another church and you're going to see a handful of these people that you're not even going to see on Sundays anymore. And it's going to be painful, and it's going to hurt. But we do it because we love this city. And we love Jesus. We want to see this city transformed by the gospel. And the only way we're going to renew it is by sending people out. We're not going to expect people on the north side of Madison to come down in here and worship with us on Sundays. We have to be a sending church, and we have to plant more churches in this city if we want to see it renewed by the gospel. Let me just tell you how this might happen with church planning for us. And this... This could be totally off, or maybe I'm prophetic and I'll nail it, but this is what this might look like. 
We get this couple that hears about this from one of your relationships that you have. You invite them into this church, and they're driving here from Middleton. Driving all the way down, out of their community, all, all this place that they normally do life in, and they're driving down here to worship on Sundays because they like the community, and they like a gospel-centered church who's living on mission down here on the southwest side of Madison. They like it so much that they began inviting some of their friends, and pretty soon we have, you know, six to 12 people that are coming from Middleton to worship down here. I see somewhat of a problem with that. So our goal would be to say, okay, you have like six to 12 people up there in Middleton, and you're coming all the way down here to worship with us. Let's just start a city group up there. We'll start a city group in Middleton and invite some of your friends that you know in Middleton that are in your community, that are your neighbors, that maybe you work out with or you know from the gas station or wherever you might be living on mission. Invite them in. So then the city group begins to grow, and they're busting at the seams. And you could say, okay, we've got 20 people now. We could just, you know, launch another city group in Middleton. Or we could say, you know what? Let's provide a place for people to worship in Middleton. So we send somebody who's trained and ready to be a pastor. Um, we're, we're always doing leadership development here. We're, we're training people to be church planners. We start a new church in Middleton. And then pretty soon, other people from Middleton start to come. They start another city group in Middleton, and all of a sudden we have a gospel presence in a neighborhood that didn't have it before. That's why we plant churches. That's why we plant churches, for the glory of God. But this might not just happen in Middleton. You know, it might happen on the north side of Madison. It might happen in Verona. It might happen in, in Stoughton. It depends on where the relationships kind of go out to. In Acts, Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud and taken out of their sight. Like this is Jesus' last words to his disciples. That you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem where you're standing, and also in Judea, which is kind of the, the region surrounding where you're at, I want you to go a little bit further out. And in Samaria, which was a place that was completely different from what they were and people they didn't even like. And then to the ends of the earth. They weren't meant to just stay in Jerusalem and have this little church party that lasted for eternity until God took them home to heaven. He said, I want you to take this gospel, this good news that I have come to save, and take this to the ends of the earth. So when we look at Madison as seeing renewed, we're going to plant many churches here in Madison, but that also means that we're going to plant churches around this area. It means that we're going to plant churches a little bit further out than that. Later on in our service, we've got two guys that are coming to talk about a church plant down in Dubuque, Iowa. Um, we love what they're doing. We have great relationships with these guys. And uh, we're going to hear about what, what God is doing and how the gospel is going out from there. We're also going to go to the ends of the earth. Um, Sam Harding, who's not here today, but he's uh, leading our, our missions team. And they have a, a committee that is figuring out where we are going to go, uh, probably somewhere in South America and then somewhere over in the 1040 window so that we can send church planners and, and missionaries to plant new churches to the ends of the earth. When we think about, like, the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, I mean, we are witnesses of these things because we are at the ends of the earth. The fact that the gospel is here in Madison is, is the fact that the Great Commission is going out to the ends of the earth. 
because the gospel moved out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. Think about how far we are from Jerusalem. So we are a church planning church. We see this a lot through the Bible, and I, I know there's some people that are kind of resistant to church planning in some degree because Jesus calls us to make disciples, but making disciples is about gathering a community of people into worship, into a, a church. You see Paul, who traveled all over the place with a team of people, and he would constantly go into a new area, and he would evangelize and go in and, and, and preach the gospel message, and then he, sometimes he would leave people behind them that could raise up disciples where he was at. He would go on to the next region, and then he would kind of double back up, go strengthen the, the believers that were already there, and then sometimes sending people back to these same cities that he had already reached. When Paul writes his letters to these churches, where do you, where do you think he's writing these two? Just, just to Christians? No, he wrote them to churches. When you see the letters to the churches in Corinth, that is Corinthians, what we have. You see Ephesians, that's to the churches in Ephesus. You see um, Colossians to the church in Coloss. You see Thessalonians, which was to the churches in Thessalonica. Over and over again, you see him writing letters to churches in these areas because Paul was a church planner. But even you see this with the disciples. You have the 12 disciples. They remained in Jerusalem area for quite a while, but they still went out and planted the gospel and planted churches in surrounding regions. Guess who went further than any of the other 12 disciples? Take a wild guess. Thomas. Thomas went further than any of the other disciples. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? This guy doesn't have any faith. He went all the way to India, and there's a church in India that can trace the roots all the way back to Thomas to this day, which is crazy. To make disciples, they planted churches because that was the best way to evangelize a new area. To form a community centered around the gospel, centered around mission. So I know that these were kind of two different separate, separate topics today. We talked about being a servant and church planning. But let me kind of just bring us back and I'll conclude with this. If you want to know what our motivation is for doing these two things, just need to look back at Matthew 20. In verse 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 gives us this great picture of a humble Savior who obeyed the Father and humbled himself by becoming a man and humbled himself even more by dying on a cross. That is the picture we get of a servant. In the end of Matthew 28, it says, He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for a ransom for many. Christ, in humble obedience, went to the cross to ransom us. I just want you to put this in perspective. I know people that are up to their eyeballs in debt from either um, going to college or from credit cards or both. And I've had experience in my life where people have been so buried by their debt that they were almost suicidal because they thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to dig myself out of this hole. I'm going to be trapped for the rest of my life because my debt is up to here. And so it seemed like the obvious thing of like, I just need to check out because I'm never going to get out of this hole. When we think about debt. There is a spiritual debt because of our sin that we have. 
<laughs> and th th this is much higher than just a school debt. This is, this is such a large debt that we are imprisoned by it forever. And that because of this debt, that one day we will be in hell imprisoned by it forever. That is the debt we have consumed because of our sin. We can't get out of ourselves. There's no way to pay off this debt by ourselves, but because God loves us and had mercy upon us, he sent his son for us, and his son, out of humble obedience to the Father, came for us to intercede for us. And when Jesus intercedes for us, it's not like he's a, a, some debt collector that constantly hounds us over and over and over again to play, pay that debt. Jesus comes in and says, you know what, that debt that you have on you can't possibly pay it? Let me take that upon myself. Let me be your ransom to set you free from that debt. Jesus humbled himself and became a ransom for you. This is the good news that we get to go out with a mission. This is the good news we get to plant churches around, that we were enslaved to sin and we've been ransomed by Jesus Christ. So if this is the picture that we get of a Savior, Lord, King, Jesus, who would humble himself and come to be our ransom, how much more should we serve others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture that Jesus has given us an example of how to humble ourselves and serve others. And I know we live in a culture where this is a, not a normal thing to do. It seems like a silly thing to do in some ways because our culture tries to escalate themselves and make themselves great. Father, as we think about serving others, may we always look at the picture of your mercy and your grace and your love for us and know that Jesus was humbly obedient to you and come down and served us in the ultimate kind of way. Father, let that be our picture as we serve this city and may this city be renewed by your wonderful gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.